1: SSOP.
0: That cost seems absurdly low to me. Like, first, I expected it to be much higher given the quality of the content, but also $0.99. You you can't park next to a theater for $0.99.
1: Accurate. Also, if you watch Marquee TV, you get to see these shows maybe wearing your pajamas and hanging out with your cat or your dog.
0: Yeah. It's a good way to sort of indulge your own curiosity. You can see all the performances of Hamlet or maybe the first 15 minutes of all of the performances of Hamlet, and you don't have to rope your friends and family into all of that.
1: Or you could watch Richard II over and over and over and over.
0: (laughs) What's the best angle for David Tennant Mm -hmm. in Richard II?
1: Trick question. All of them. (laughs) Anyway, you definitely need to explore the website because there is a ton of really fun, fascinating... Engaging stuff on there. I went in specifically looking for Shakespeare and I found a ton of other things I wanted to watch.
0: Yeah. You can keep up with what they're doing on social media at Marquee Arts TV. You can visit their website at marquee.tv. That's marquee.tv to get three months of their service for just 99 cents with the promo code SSOP. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now the show.
1: Coming up, a novel set in a Midwestern family restaurant.
0: A Southern Gothic tale with a modern twist.
1: Plus our distraction of the week. I'm Mel.
0: I'm Dave. This is the Library of Lost Time.
1: If you like novels that intertwine food and family shenanigans, you might know the work of author J. Ryan Stradle. His previous novels, both very well-received, are The Lager Queen of Minnesota, and Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Oh, yeah. He lives in L.A. now, but he grew up in Hastings, Minnesota. His bio says he often failed his driver's license exams and graduated from Northwestern University, where he often slipped on the ice. He does not own a gun and a motorcycle, which makes him unique among the men in his extended family. That sense of humor and locals' eye for telling detail seems to be the hallmark of his writing. His new novel is Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. The story centers on Mariel. Her family owns the supper club of the title. It's found on the shore of Bear Jaw Lake in Minnesota. And like it or not, it defines Mariel's past, present, and future. Because she's inherited the burden of the family business. I like how this is kind of an American version of a British manor house story. It's like the American version of finding out that you'd inherited some giant pile of a country house (laughs) at a dramatic will reading. Yeah. And that's not always a blessing. No. This story is told in alternating points of view and shows how a family restaurant can be viewed as a gift, as a safe place, or as a burden, depending on your generation and point of view. The flap copy says it describes the colorful, vanishing world of relish trays and brandy old fashions. I love a relish tray. And Kirkus says it's a loving ode to supper clubs, the Midwest, and the people there who try their best to make life worth living. This sounds like it would be a really great pairing with Last Summer at the Golden Hotel by Alyssa Friedland. That one tells the story of the hijinks at a family-owned resort in the Catskills. So you go all in on family businesses. (laughs) This book is Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club by J. Ryan Stradle, and it's out now.
0: T. Kingfisher is an author who works primarily in Southern Gothic horror. Her gift is lacing humor and a modern voice together with some alarming stuff. She's got a new book out. It's called A House with Good Bones. It's set in the present day. A biologist, Samantha Montgomery, goes home to see her mother. She's looking forward to hanging out, drinking wine, and watching British detective shows. Sounds good to me. Yep. But something's wrong with mom.
1: That doesn't sound good to me.
0: No. <laughs> she seems skittish and forgetful, which is a change from her usual point itself. And she's lost a lot of weight. And she's also redecorated the house. It used to have brightly colored walls, but now it's flat white. It's starting to resemble what it looked like 20 years ago when, when Grandma was alive. Sam starts digging around, and she doesn't like what she finds. <laughs> this book starts straight eerie, and then wanders into Lovecraft territory. The part that I'm enjoying most right now, though, is the narrator's voice. I picture her as maybe eighty Bryant. She's smart and funny and fun to hang around with, even as things are going very poorly for her. If you're looking for a creepy trip into North Carolina, you might enjoy this. It's A House with Good Bones by T. Kingfisher. And now, our distraction of the week.
1: If you're listening to this show on its release day... Today is Charlotte Bronte's 207th birthday. Oh,
0: happy birthday, Charlotte.
1: Happy birthday, Charlotte. She was born on April 21st, 1816. And as you probably know, she's the author of Jane Eyre. Yep. A.K.A. my favorite book of all time. She also wrote three other novels and a slew of poetry. I've kind of made a hobby of the Brontes over the years. We visited the Bronte Parsonage Museum in Haworth. Yep. I collect copies of Jane Eyre in multiple languages even though I can't read them. Yes. I've read all of Charlotte's major biographies. But this week, I learned something I somehow previously missed. Really? When Charlotte died in 1855, she left behind a 20-page manuscript. It's a fragment, really, for a novel called Emma. This was news to me. Yeah. So imagine it. It's a cold winter evening in Yorkshire. It's 1854. Charlotte has only been married to her husband, Arthur Bell Nichols, since the summer. And their courtship was not the breathless swoon of Jane and Rochester and Jane Eyre. Mm. But in a letter to a friend, Charlotte wrote this. He is certainly my dear boy, and he is dearer to me today than he was six months ago.
0: That's either nice or damning with faint praise.
1: <laughs> She's warming up to him. Okay. Prior to getting married, yeah. Charlotte has spent her evenings writing. Yeah. Specifically, she'd spent her evenings writing with her sisters.
0: Yeah. The Bronte sisters were like the world's first writing group.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, very close to it, yeah. Yeah. They used to write at the table in the dining room and then walk in circles around the table and read to each other. Yeah. But now they're dead Mm. and she's married. She's sitting by the fire with her new husband and she's feeling restless. So she runs up the stairs and she fetches the novel she's been working on. And she reads the first pages of her work in progress aloud to her husband, which is what she used to do with Emily and Anne. And his response was less enthusiastic than she hoped. Oh, no. So she put it away. And sadly, five months later, she was dead. And there was nothing more of Emma except these 20 pages.
0: That's a sad story.
1: Okay. Just to salvage Arthur Bell Nichols. By all accounts, he was very kind and his lackluster response wasn't meant to be cruel. He was worried that the critics were going to be mean to her because of the plot. Here's the plot. Like her smash hit, Jane Eyre, this new novel, Emma, centered around a young girl going away to school. So Arthur was worried the critics were going to be mean because she was retreading similar territory.
0: <laughs> you don't do anything but write school stories. Yeah. You should branch out. Yes. Write about submarines or something.
1: (laughs) But unlike orphan Jane, this girl, Matilda, is wealthy. Oh. Completely different story. Totally. Her father, Conway Fitzgibbon, Esquire, is the master of May Park, an estate in Midland County. The sisters, Wilcox, who run the school, are delighted at the prospect of the girl's annual tuition and her fine silk dresses. They dote on her, much to the chagrin of the other girls at the school. When the Christmas holidays arrive, Matilda's father can't be reached. Letters to him return unopened, and when they go poking around, no trace of him or his manor house can be found.
0: And that's how Charlotte Bronte wrote the world's first thriller.
1: No. Oh, Miss Wilcox angrily confronts Matilda... And the little girl falls into a swoon. And that's it. That's all we have. That's it? That's all we got? That's all we got. Oh. A mysterious abandoned child, a struggling school, class issues. I weep for where Charlotte Bronte might have taken this story. (laughs) Maybe it was going to be a thriller. We don't know. Right. I am not the only one who wishes this book existed. So two authors have taken Charlotte's 20 pages and run with them. In 1980, an author named Constance Savory wrote her version. I went on deep, deep Google dives, and I couldn't find anything about this book beyond the fact that it existed. In 2003, a writer named Emma Boylan wrote her version and called it Emma Brown. And it was pretty well received. The New York Times said, Boylan succeeds in creating a book that is convincing in voice, even while it tells a vivid, dramatic, and richly absorbing story. Her sense of the period is both precise and evocative. The characters Bronte had briefly but confidently sparked into life are plausibly developed while their histories are artfully entwined.
0: It's almost a rave from the times. Right? Yeah.
1: If you're as curious as I am about this whole endeavor, the Internet Archive has a LibriVox recording of Charlotte's 20 original pages. And Emma Brown by Emma Boylan, is also there on the Internet Archive, so you can read along while listening to the audio. And the book is also available in paperback if you want to go old school. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes at strongsenseofplace.com slash library, along with more information about the other books we talked about today.
0: Thanks for joining us in the Library of Lost Time. Remember to visit your local library and your independent bookstore to lose some time yourself.
1: Stay curious. We'll talk to you soon.